What song would you like to have played at your funeral? Maybe you've never given that a minute's thought. But on the other hand, maybe you have a long list of songs already chosen. I know that my wife does. I keep getting updates as she adds new songs to the list. But people always do have songs at their funeral. And apparently before COVID arrived, the most popular song at funerals in the UK was My Way. The song was made famous by Frank Sinatra. I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way. It's a song of self-sufficiency. It's a song actually of human pride. But significantly, if you know the song, there is not a hint in it at all of hope for the future. It's all about looking back and congratulating yourself on doing your own thing. It offers nothing for the future. That was before COVID. Now we're told there is a new most popular song at funerals. You'll never walk alone. Which, funnily enough, was first performed by Frank Sinatra before Jerry and the pacemakers got hold of it. You'll never walk alone is a very different song from My Way. It's a song about not being afraid of the future. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. Now, I happen to be quite fond of that song because of a certain football team. And it does have one thing going for it. Unlike the song, My Way, You'll Never Walk Alone, at least acknowledges that we cannot do it alone. We're not strong enough by ourselves. And that's why it's a perfect song for football supporters who want to feel, whether it's true or not, that their team needs them. That they're all in it together. And no doubt the reason that has become the most popular song at funerals is because people want some hope for the future. But in all honesty, I can't say that you'll never walk alone helps all that much. It tells us to walk on. It tells us not to be afraid. It tells us at the end of the storm, there's a golden sky, but it gives us no reason at all to believe that. It's a bunch of nice, positive words built on nothing. It tells us to be hopeful, but it offers no foundation at all for our hope. It offers hope that is built on thin air. But we need more than that. If we are to be truly hopeful in life and in death, we need a solid foundation for our hope. And this morning, we're going to look at another song. And I would suggest it's a much better song than the two I've just mentioned. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
If you're using a church Bible, it's page 210, and in the larger print Bibles, 322. Deuteronomy 32. This is usually referred to as the Song of Moses. In fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 31, it's, uh, our English Bibles usually include that as a title for this section, the Song of Moses. But chapter 31 told us Moses did not write this song. It was given to him by the Lord. And it was intended to be Israel's anthem. A song for the people to sing, not only in good times, but also in very bad times. So we're going to read this song from chapter 32, verse 1, down to verse 47. The song begins. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, and the finest grains of wheat, you drank the foaming blood of the grape. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. 
I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities on them and expend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. The young men and young women will perish, the infants and those with gray hair. I said I would scatter them and erase their name from human memory. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve? And sealed it in my vaults. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people. And relent concerning his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, with his people. 
For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. When Moses had finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is God's word. It's his word in a song. And what this song does and what it calls us to do is to praise the greatness of our God. After he teaches the Israelites this song, Moses says to them, These are not just idle words or empty words, like many songs are. Empty words set to a catchy tune. The words of this song are not empty. They are words of refreshing, life-giving truth. You can see that if you turn back to verse 1 at the opening of the song. Listen, you heavens, And I will speak, hear you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. This is a song that is not just for ancient Israel. It's for the heavens and the earth to hear. It has relevance for all people and all creation. And look at the effect. When this song is heard and when it's taken to heart, it's like rain that causes the plants to grow. It brings life and it refreshes when life is waning. How does it do that? It does it by bringing the truth to us. This life-giving song begins and ends with truth about God And in the middle of the song, there is a healthy dose of truth truth about ourselves. First, the song announces truth about God in verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. There's a refreshing clarity here. This is no vague, uncertain suggestion about God. To proclaim his name is to announce his character. It means here's what he's like. And the one whose character is being proclaimed is the Lord. That's the personal name of Israel's God. So we're not just talking about any old God. This is the God who has made himself known to Israel. And here's what he's like. He is great. He is the rock, meaning he's strong, he's stable, he's permanent. He's not like the grass that withers or the dust that blows away. He is not going anywhere. 
And in the context of the Middle East, where this song was first sung, to call God the rock meant he was a safe place to hide. He was a place of shelter from enemies and from the burning heat. However hot things get, the Lord will be a safe refuge. However chaotic things get, the Lord will be a firm place to stand. Even if everything else gets turned upside down. Verse 4 says his works are perfect. He doesn't mess up ever. There's a kid's song that says God never says oops. He never slips up. He never makes any mistakes. That's what this song is saying. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. What he does is right. He doesn't do injustice. And he's faithful. He keeps his promises. He is the strong and faithful father who does no wrong. And then we're given evidence for that in verses 7 to 14. We'll come back to verses 5 and 6 later. For evidence of the greatness of God, we might expect to hear, as we often do in the Old Testament, about God's actions in Israel's past. But actually, throughout this song, things are put in such a way that it is never just about Israel. All nations have reason to acknowledge this truth about the Lord. I said we come back to verses 5 and 6, but just look for the moment at the end of verse 6, which says, Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? That applies to all people on the earth. That was Paul's point in Acts 17. Father is being used here to say he is the source of your existence. And that's true of everyone. And when verse 7 then says, consider the days of old, again, we might expect something about Israel's past. But look at the days of old that are actually mentioned in verse 8. They are the days when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided all mankind. He set up boundaries for the peoples. We've seen that the Lord is God's personal name. The name he revealed to Israel. But here he is referred to differently as the Most High. That name shows he is the sovereign ruler over all the nations. Israel's story is part of a much bigger picture. God rules all of heaven and earth. And yes, the Israelites have a very special place in that big picture. Verse 9 says, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted inheritance. Jacob is another name for Israel. So the Most High God who rules the whole universe... Setting the boundaries of nations, giving them their inheritance in this world, he chose Jacob's family as his own inheritance. The earth and the heavens belong to God. All nations are in his hand, and the Israelites are his treasured possession. So again, at this point, we might expect now a review of Israel's history. 
And what comes in verses 10 to 14 certainly fits with Israel's history, but it's worded in a very careful way. It's worded in such a way that there's no direct mention of the exodus from Egypt. There's no direct mention of the big event at Mount Sinai after the exodus when the law was first given to Israel. And verses 10 to 14 speak about God's care, what they say could apply to Israel, but also to the entire human race. When the first chapter of the Bible talks about God's work of creation, it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. And that same Hebrew wording is used here in verse 10. It's translated in our English Bibles as God found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Is that talking about God coming to care for Israel in the wilderness? Or is it talking about a stage much, much further back? God caring and creating for Adam, the very first man. I think these words apply to both. Israel has been created and cared for by God, and so has the entire human race. Again, when verse 11 gives the image of an eagle hovering over its young, it's using words from the same verse we referred to a moment ago. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So has God cared for Israel like an eagle cares for its young? Yes, of course. And hasn't he shown similar care for all humanity? Not only does Genesis tell us he created the human race with special hands-on attention, he also nurtured and led the human race. Without that care, none of us would be here today. Again, when verses 13 and 14 talk about God feeding and nourishing, it could apply to God providing for Israel, but equally to his provision for all humanity. It wasn't only Israelites who enjoyed honey, oil, and wine, which is described here as the foaming blood of the grape. So the point of verses 10 to 14 is that all humanity has reason to praise the greatness of God. We have all benefited from the fact that he's the strong and faithful father who does no wrong. And so, we are all at fault when we fail to praise him. If you look back to verses 5 and 6, those verses stand out all the more because of what we've just heard. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? You foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? In the light of God's faithfulness, in light of the fact that he does no wrong, we are shown to be in the wrong. 
We are the crooked ones, foolish and unfaithful people. Verses 15 to 18 are going to speak specifically about Israel's crookedness. Verse 15 says, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. Jeshurun is the Lord's affectionate name for Israel. Like a pet name. It means the upright one or the straight one. But in reality, Israel proved to be the crooked one. The Israelites lapped up God's loving care and provision, but instead of acknowledging his greatness, they became as dopey and thick-headed as a fat calf. A fat calf who eats up all the farmer's food and then thinks he can do without the farmer. Israel devoured the Lord's gifts and then treated the Lord himself with contempt. Verse 15 says, Israel abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. Instead of that, they turned away to idols, prostituting themselves to false gods who had not given them life and had never cared for them. Verse 18 says, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. That verse is interesting because it's saying God has been like a father and like a mother to Israel. So how crooked and foolish to be unfaithful to him. And if that was true of Israel, isn't it true of us all? Isn't the book of Romans right when it says there is no one righteous? Not even one? Hasn't God given us life and breath and everything else? Haven't we all lived on his bounty every day of our lives? And haven't we all repaid him with desertion and forgetfulness? Aren't we all crooked deep down? And the way that we put other things in God's place as if they could ever replace the rock. At this point, we might want to object and say, well, it's not good for our self-esteem to be so negative about ourselves, surely. But actually, what is truly bad for us is refusing to acknowledge our crookedness. Going through life, telling ourselves we're okay, that is a case of trying to be hopeful without any real reason for hope. Because the truth is, we are crooked. We have turned from our Father, our Creator. And denying that is not going to get us anywhere. The Jewish book of 2 Maccabees says that this song bears witness against us to our faces. And we need that as human beings. Songs that are silly or sentimental can be fun, I agree. But those kind of songs are no real help to us at all. We need songs that proclaim the truth about ourselves. 
We need songs that bear witness against us to our faces. Songs that say, I did it my way, and my way was selfish, shameful, and stupid. You and I cannot truly praise the greatness of our God until we have admitted our own crookedness, foolishness, and unfaithfulness. But once we've given up trying to justify ourselves, once we've taken the step of bearing witness against ourselves, then we are ready to praise God as the just judge and the gracious healer. Just as it has up to this point, the song continues to speak about both Israel and all of humanity. Verses 19 to 25 are about Israel. And after what we've just heard about Israel treating the Lord with contempt, it's no shock when we hear in these verses that judgment is coming on Israel. It's not petulance. It's not God taking the huff. It's what happens when creation turns its back on the creator. He is infinitely worthy of praise. And when we live to praise ourselves or to praise something else in creation, the result is judgment. That's not spitefulness. It's justice. When we reject the one who gives life and nurture and every good thing, all that's left is calamity, deprivation, and death. We've heard the details of that already in this book, and they're summarized again in verses 19 to 25. We're told here that God's judgment will be delivered on Israel by another nation. No names are given. But what actually happened was, in, later in Israel's history, they were conquered and taken into exile. First by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians. And here in our passage, the coming judgment is described like it will be the end for Israel. And indeed, the Lord says down in verse 26, if you look carefully at that verse, I said I would scatter them and erase their name from human memory. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy. Lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. The Lord himself gives us a remarkable insight into his own thoughts here. He says what held him back from erasing Israel was the arrogance of those conquering enemies. He knew they would assume their conquest of Israel was due to their own greatness. They did it their way, and it turned out well, because they're so great. When the truth is, those other nations were God's instrument to deliver his judgment on Israel. And so now, the song turns to the crookedness, foolishness, and unfaithfulness of Israel's enemies. Verse 30 says, they don't have the sense to see that they could never have overcome Israel by themselves. 
They could never have had that victory unless the Lord, the rock, had given Israel up to them. The conquerors of Israel think that their own gods gave them victory. But verse 31 says, their rock, small r, is not like our rock, capital R. The gods of the other nations are like pointless pebbles beside the rock. Those other gods have no strength. They are no foundation to build a life on. They're like pebbles. They can offer no true shelter at all. And so then, what about all the good things that the enemies of Israel enjoy? Verse 32 says, their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities that were notorious in the Old Testament for appearing to be fruitful and nourishing. They attracted people from a distance because they looked so good. But in actuality, all that they could offer was destruction in the end. And the song says, just like those two cities, the good things enjoyed by the enemies of Israel are going to lead them in the end to bitter death. And so if we put this together, the message of verses 19 to 33 is that both rebellious Israel and her enemies deserve God's judgment. And verse 34 says that judgment is stored up like bitter wine in God's wine cellar, ready to be delivered in his own good time. Have I not kept this in reserve? And sealed it in my vaults. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. And their doom rushes upon them. The sobering truth is that we all deserve doom. Whether we come from a religious background or a non-religious one whether we know what the Bible says or not, we have all deserted the rock who fathered us. We've all turned from the God who gave us birth. And the bitter wages of that is to face God's just judgment. And God leaves us in no doubt. He will pay out judgment. But there is more to the greatness of God. There is more than total power shown in judgment. There is also unfathomable compassion. Having shown us the just judge, now in verse 36, the song takes another turn to show us the gracious healer. Verse 36 says, the Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. Everyone deserves judgment. The song has testified to that truth. 
And it's not glossed over here. We've all run after substitute gods. And they're all unable to save. Everyone deserves judgment, but for some, there will be life and healing. Verse 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. So judgment is coming. There's no doubt about that. And for some, healing is coming. Cleansing from the guilt of their sin. Who's going to be healed? Well, it's not explained here. Clearly, it will not just be Israelites. Verse 43 says, rejoice, you nations, with his people. If you look at different translations, you'll find some differences in wording for that phrase. But what is clear in the Hebrew text is that it is not just Israelites who will praise God for his gracious healing. The nations will benefit too. There will be non-Israelites who receive life. No longer counted as God's enemies, but now counted among his servants. So the song ends with hope. There is hope for crooked, foolish, and unfaithful people like us. And it's not the kind of hope that we find in a song like You'll Never Walk Alone. This hope is not tied to thin air. It's tied to the Lord, the strong and faithful Father who does no wrong. Our hope has a firm foundation. But what is not explained here is how that hope will be realized. That's not surprising. When God taught Israel this song, both salvation and judgment were sealed in his vaults. He's told us that. They were both kept for the future. But God didn't stop speaking at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 32. He has said more about how this gracious healing will come. There's a bit of a trend nowadays for taking an old song and updating it. Adding a new verse or maybe adding a chorus. And that's happened to some of our older hymns. It turns out that God himself likes to update his songs. And he did it with this song. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is shown a series of visions. Those visions include both judgment and blessing. 
They show both the defeat of God's enemies and they show the salvation of his people. And in Revelation chapter 15, John sees those people who have been saved. And this is what he tells us. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God has updated his own song. He's added another verse. A final verse to be sung when God's righteous acts are no longer sealed up in his vaults. They have been revealed. He has shown himself to be the just judge and the gracious healer. And equally important, along with a new verse, there is a new title for the song. It is now the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. It was through the Lamb that God brought healing and made atonement. Jesus Christ has died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus was punished in our place. He was the perfect Son of God. But he died in the place of us, crooked, foolish, and unfaithful people. He took the wounds and the death that were due to God's enemies He took that on himself and he did it so we could enjoy life and healing. And his death was for not just Israelites, but all peoples, including 21st century people like you and me. And this extra verse to the song is an invitation to us today. Come and worship this God. He has provided now the way of life and healing. And you don't have to pretend that you deserve it. Come admitting that you're crooked and foolish. Admit you've been unfaithful. None of us actually can claim any better than that for ourselves. We've all been devoted to doing it our way. And our way only leads to bitter judgment. Let's admit that and trust in Jesus instead of ourselves. Without him, any hope we have is a false hope. It's built on wishful thinking. But with Jesus, our hope has a firm foundation. Because it's based on the greatness of our God. The God who offers mercy and salvation instead of bitter judgment. And let's thank God that as Christians, we have better songs to sing than anyone else. 
We can sing about God's salvation in Christ. Our funeral songs can be songs about him rather than songs praising ourselves, like my way, or songs with just a vague, cloudy hope that things are going to turn out all right, like you'll never walk alone. We have better songs to sing, don't we? And they don't have to wait till our funerals. We can sing them today. So let's do that together to God's glory. And let's stand as we do it. As we sing, first of all, Jesus, thank you. And then when I was lost.
Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. strength within sorrow there is beauty in our tears and you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear yeah you're working and are waiting you are working in our waiting You're sanctifying us When beyond our understanding You're teaching us to trust This thing is hard Your plans are still to prosper you have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Yes, we trust you. It's a loving king. Wisdom unimagined. Who could understand your ways? Reading high above the heavens, reaching down in endless grace. You feel 